Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Crossroads Church in Sandy, Utah. Join us as we listen to a sermon from a recent Sunday morning service. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. It's fitting as we open up the word that we were just reminded that Christ is the sum and substance of the revelation that is found in Scripture. And we have seen even how each of these 10 words, the 10 commandments, have pointed us to the salvation that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. This morning, we will continue with these 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, as we consider the seventh commandment or the seventh word that we read earlier this morning. So I will read it for you again, this short command, and we will focus our attention for the remainder of the sermon on it. Verse 14 of Exodus 20 says, You shall not commit adultery. As we consider this word, let's turn in prayer and ask for the Lord's help to be hearers and doers of the word. Our gracious God, we thank you for your righteous character that is revealed in your law. And we pray, Lord, as your people, as we live in the midst of a culture that is becoming increasingly celebratory of sexual immorality, that you would give us the strength to hold fast to the truth and not be deceived by the voice of the serpent. Lord, that you would help us to quickly confess our own sins and the lusts of our own hearts. And Lord, that you would even through your word as we hear it preached, Lord, strengthen us in our own marriages to be faithful and to keep our covenant vows to the very end. And Lord, we pray that your church would do this not just here, but throughout the world and so be a light a city set on a hill against the backdrop of a darkness that is leaving people broken and empty. So help us in all these ways for your glory and your great name we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Perhaps of all of these 10 commandments, the one that needs no introduction to convince you of its urgency in our own culture is this seventh commandment. But nevertheless, I will give you an introduction anyway. Perhaps the quest for human autonomy in our own culture is most obvious with respect to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery is a word that defines sexual ethics and restricts sexual intimacy to the covenant of marriage. And in restricting sexual behavior, it also maximizes sexual enjoyment. This is something a fallen people in a fallen world does not understand. We have been living through what some have labeled a sexual revolution. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Sexual sin is a perversion that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and primeval history. The reason for the label sexual revolution is because in much of our nation's history, we have rightly recognized that marriage is an institution given by God and defined as one man and one woman in a covenant relationship 
for a lifetime. In 2015, the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court sought to overturn that. A handful of judges in our nation thought they could essentially redefine marriage in a civil society to include so-called gay marriage. But of course, such a thing does not exist. To speak of gay marriage is like speaking of square circles. It's an impossibility. To try to redefine marriage is to try similarly to redefine gravity, as I have said before. You can't do it. Marriage is an institution defined by God and established at the very beginning of creation between Adam and Eve as the norm for all peoples in all cultures throughout all of history. But we live now in a culture that celebrates what has been become called Pride Month. It's a month dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ ideology. We see the propaganda in stores and online and all over the place in our culture. Some of you may be asked in your places of work or will, will be asked to put a rainbow flag on your desk to show support. And churches have capitulated and will continue to capitulate on this issue. Recently, I was pointed to St. John's Presbyterian Church in Tennessee that hosted a pride worship service last June to benefit Tennessee drag artists. This is the world we live in. The seventh commandment, as simple as it is, speaks to all of these issues and more. The seventh commandment addresses the proper boundaries for sexual intimacy. It doesn't just address things like LGBTQ ideology. It rules out sexual sins like fornication and pornography. And it upholds God's design for marriage as the only proper channel for sexual intimacy. Our kids are growing up in a world that gives them a different message. They are bombarded and we are bombarded with sexually explicit messages and images everywhere all the time. Social media is pervasive with sexually graphic images. OnlyFans has become a multi-billion dollar industry, anywhere from five to 18 billion dollars in net worth. We live in a time where AI technology can be used to generate content that looks real but is not real. So people claim they're not harming anyone by watching it because the people are not real people. But the damage done to one's own heart and mind and soul is incalculable. In addition to all of this, the predominant sexual ethic in our culture is the idea of consent. So long as both people consent, then everything is okay. Yet even where there is consent, people live their lives with guilt and shame for the consensual things that they have done. I really don't need to give this kind of introduction to this topic because you know it all too well. It's urgent. The seventh commandment, the seventh word, is an urgent word in so many ways. And in part because the pressures to capitulate on deviant and perverse views of marriage and sexuality are mounting. The voice of the serpent is everywhere. Did 
God really say? Marriage is between a man and a woman. Satan and his armies are at war with marriage because they hate marriage. They hate Christ. They hate the gospel. And the lie that you will be tempted with is this. Love means acceptance. The seventh word is a needed word. It assumes a biblical definition of marriage that is unbreakable and glorious. It restricts sexual activity to the marriage relationship. And it points us again to the glorious, unbreakable bond between Christ and the church. These are truths we must never yield, even at the expense of our personal freedoms and our lives. And I hope it doesn't come to that. I really hope it doesn't come to that. So let's look at the seventh word. Notice first, its immediate application to the nation of Israel. The commandments pertaining to how humans are to relate to one another began with God's instructions for the household. The second table of the law, children, obey your parents. God instructs Israel on how these households are to function with parental authority and children are learned to submit to authority and be contributing members to a society by learning to submit to their parents. And within a society, people are to uphold and protect life and not kill. And now we come to this fundamental institution in society, which is the institution of marriage. The command is, again, like many of the others, expressed in the negative. You shall not commit adultery. The most immediate meaning and application is obvious. A married man and a married woman are not to have a sexual relationship with anyone except their spouse. To violate this command in Israel would incur the death penalty, according to Leviticus 20.10. Here's what it says. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, as with all of God's laws and the penalties attached to them in Israel, the law and its penalty is just and righteous. The death penalty was a legitimate and just penalty for adultery because sexual promiscuity is a matter of public concern. This commandment guards the family from destruction, and it guards a society from collapsing. Now, qualification here. I am not saying that nations today have to adopt this penalty for adultery. The righteousness of this moral law stands, but how it is upheld in a civil society today in nations and what penalties are incurred requires wisdom and is not binding to the penalty that was given in ancient Israel. As a church, we do not wield the sword. You've heard me say this multiple times. We don't have the authority to do so, but we wield the keys, and we have a responsibility to practice church discipline for unrepentant, adulterous behavior. 1 Corinthians 5 is a good example of this. When Paul rebukes the church at Corinth, because they are permitting one of their members, a man, to be in an 
an immoral relationship with his stepmother. And he says, you are not to allow this, and you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, to call him to repentance. Accepting sexual immorality in a church will destroy a church, and it will destroy a society if it is pervasive in a society. Adultery destroys lives and ruins households. A man who forsakes his wife for another woman is a man who would leave his wife and children destitute, beggars, and possibly to end up in poverty. He is the epitome of selfishness and betrayal and destructive behavior. The psychological damage done to a wife and children by an adulterous husband is severe. A woman who doesn't remain faithful to her husband and order her life around her household and the children and her husband is a destructive woman, a person who will ruin her own life and the lives of those involved. It never ceases to amaze me how many stories I hear, usually of a man who will abandon his wife and children because in his mind he has become emotionally attached and started having an affair with another woman. It's a disregard for everything good and noble and right. A man like that in Israel would incur the death penalty because he was a cancer to society at large. So the seventh commandment forbids adultery, but it forbids so much more. As we have done with the other negative prohibitions, this commandment can be stated positively. Sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage covenant alone. Alone. This means the seventh commandment forbids other forms of sexual activity. In Leviticus 18, God says your sexual ethics are to be different than the people in the land of Egypt and the people in the land of Canaan. Therefore, you shall not uncover, he says, the nakedness of your mother, your stepmother, your daughter-in-law, your aunt, your sister-in-law. Leviticus 18, 22 through 23. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So clearly, according to God's word, consent is not the controlling sexual ethic for God's people. God defines marriage and he limits sexual activity to the marriage relationship. This is a good reminder for single people that desire to be married, and even for married people as well. We have a responsibility not only to guard our own selves, but to guard the chastity of others as well. The Westminster Larger Catechism is helpful here again. I've referred to it often throughout these 10 words. This is question 138 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel. This is a good word, especially you single men who are pursuing a relationship and want to be married, you have a responsibility to treat that woman you are pursuing as a sister, knowing that she may not end up becoming your husband or becoming your wife. 
but someone else's. Right? So you must guard her and not expect her to behave as your wife until you have forsaken all others to swear devotion in a lifelong loyal commitment of marriage. Women dressing modestly is an appropriate application of the seventh commandment, right? We could say so much more. God created marriage. God created sexual intimacy. He defines its proper boundaries. The law in Israel ruled out adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality. Violations of the law could incur the death penalty. But that's the Old Testament. Times have changed. We're not under the law. God is not as strict and oppressive. That's what people will say. On the topic of homosexuality, for example, people will say that Jesus never said anything about it. He never condemned it. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. So second point, Jesus's teachings on sexual ethics are consistent with the law, grounded in the order of creation, and expose the problem of the human heart. People will say things again, like Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so therefore it is permissible now that the old covenant law has been fulfilled. Look, we're free to eat crawfish and alligators. If you want to eat an alligator, you're free to do that. Maybe not legally in our country, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not unbinding your conscience here. You can check the law for yourself. What I'm saying is that these food laws in the Old Testament are no longer binding, so people will say these other moral laws are no longer binding on people either. So if somebody is predisposed towards homosexual behavior, then they are free to do that. And the arguments unfold along those lines. So did Jesus himself have anything to say about this? He had everything to say about this. And he says so in Mark chapter 10. If you want to turn there, you can. I won't spend too much time here. Mark chapter 10, this is verses 2 through 9. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now look what he says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There it is. That's all he had to say to uphold a consistent teaching with God's law to affirm what marriage is and to rule out all other deviations from God's design for marriage. And Jesus appealed to God's creational order for marriage. That's all he had to say. You see what he says here? They come up to him with this question about divorce. They were basically saying and trying to have loopholes to basically be able to divorce her their wife and send him away for any reason. And Jesus says, look, divorce was given to you in the law as a concession in a fallen world as to how to handle these issues. But from the beginning, from the beginning, 
Here is what marriage is as defined and created by God. One man, one woman, male and female, two genders, one from each gender coming together in a one flesh union, a covenant for a lifetime. Leaving and cleaving is covenantal language. Marriage covenant creates a kinship bond. It creates a family. It's the deepest of all human covenants. It's the only proper channel for sexual intimacy. All of these ideas about consent being the controlling sexual ethic in our society are totally wrong. Jesus affirms God's design for marriage. Jesus' statement about marriage rules out all of the behaviors attached to the letters LGBT and Q and plus. Because all of those letters endorse behaviors that are outside of the one man, one woman marriage relationship. God controls our sexual ethics and limits the proper boundaries for sexual expression for our good. To deviate from God's design is not to empower people. And it's not to free people. It's to hinder them, enslave them, and bring destruction upon them. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you're picking on gay marriage and the LGBTQ movement here a little too much. Well, I'm not, because Jesus actually exposes all of us and lays us all bear. As I said, some have tried to argue that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or behavior. Actually, he did, and it goes so much deeper. He actually says to all of us, it's not just your actions that are the problem. Your hearts are deeply sinful. We saw this last week in the sixth commandment and its application in the Sermon on the Mount. We see the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount with this issue in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus simply won't let us look down our pharisaical noses on other people and say, yeah, you sinners, I'm righteous. No, he exposes the problem with all of us. Right, we're bold and we're unashamed and we'll take a stand for the meaning and definition of marriage and not shrink back from calling out sin what it is. Good, do that, but don't miss the fact that your heart and my heart is an adulterous heart apart from the Spirit of Christ, right? Once again, we can't read the seventh commandment and think, haven't committed adultery, doing good on that one. Jesus says, no, if you've ever lusted after a woman, then it betrays your corrupt heart. You are sexually devious at the very core of your being due to indwelling sin. Apart from the grace of God and the Spirit of God, you are controlled by passions. Now, lest anyone think the Bible picks on one particular sexual sin, the Bible actually exposes everyone as guilty sinners. Whether it's adultery, 
fornication or pornography or some romance novels or the lingering eye that lusts after a woman or man, it all exposes a problem with the heart. The human heart is an adulterous heart. Apart from the new birth, we are controlled by the passions of the flesh because we're children of Adam who listened to the voice of his serpent, of the serpent, who rather would indulge what looked desirable to the eye than to trust God and remain obedient. Brothers and sisters, this whole discussion about sexual ethics is not just important for the culture war that we find ourselves in. It's important because it reveals a much more urgent problem and drives us to the gospel as our salvation. You see, sexual deviance, lust, and an adulterous heart is not just a problem with how we relate to other people. It exposes a problem in our relationship with God. You see, God designed sexual intimacy to transcend the physical. It is deeply spiritual, theological, psychological. It creates connections that transcend physical actions. God designed it this way to point us to the depths of his covenant devotion for his people. This is why some of the deepest shame and guilt that people will ever experience are related to sexual sins. Whether they were the victim of sexual abuse and not responsible, or whether they were a consenting member to the sexual sin, people carry deep, deep guilt and regret and shame over this issue. More so in a way that anger or lying tends to leave with them, and I'm not minimizing those sins. But why does sexual sin cause such deep guilt and shame? Well, in part because God designed marriage and the one flesh union of those bodies in marriage to transcend the physical and point to God's covenant love and devotion and relentless faithfulness to his people. It is such a powerful thing. We know this from Ephesians 5, where Paul quotes from Genesis in talking about marriage. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God never created marriage, and then after the fact thought, that is a powerful illustration for the gospel. I'm going to use that. Almost all of my illustrations work that way, probably all of them. I find something and then say, well, this illustrates this. That's not the way marriage works, because God planned redemption and to glorify himself in the saving of sinners through his Son, and then said, I'm going to create marriage to teach people about that. See how important this is? 
Marriage is a one flesh union. It's meant to help us understand the one spirit union of Christ and the church. To teach us about the depths of Christ's love, his relentless faithfulness. The seventh word doesn't just regulate sexual behavior. It exposes an adulterous heart that is estranged from God. An adulterous heart wants the image more than obedience to the image maker. Some scholars have noted that there are parallels between the first table of the law and the second table of the law, and I think that's right. And you can see parallels between the seventh commandment and the third commandment. What was the third commandment? Well, you shall not make for yourself a graven image and bow down to it. You shall not venerate images. You see, then adultery is not just about breaking the marriage covenant. It exposes an idolatrous heart that lusts after the image of God more than the obedience to God. Physical adultery points to the spiritual idolatry of the human heart. And do you see why Paul turns to the topic of homosexual behavior in Romans 1 when he condemns the whole world for what? For their idolatry. He says that people, the natural man, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In our fallen state, we give our worship to created things, to images. And Paul says, therefore, God turned them over what? In the lusts of their heart to dishonorable passions. And how is that idolatry manifest when God turns people over to creature worship? He says, women with women and men with men, because they desire now what is most like them. It's idolatry. Paul is exposing the idolatry. It's rooted in a spiritual adultery. All sexual sin in our world points to the problem that as a human race, we are estranged from God and outside of his loyal covenant love. How do the prophets describe the sin of Israel? They use graphic language. They call the people of God a whore for their idolatry. Go read Ezekiel 16, where Ezekiel recounts God's love for Israel and how nobody wanted Israel. And Israel was like a baby left to die in a field, wallowing in its blood. And God came along and bestowed grace and love and mercy and covered Israel with his garment and loved Israel. But as she grew, and though God had adorned her with jewels and made her beautiful, she lusted after other gods. She played the harlot. And Ezekiel 16, 25 says, You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. Israel's sin is a microcosm of humanity. Everyone is a spiritually adulterous people. In Adam, we have broken in the covenant with God and we chase after lesser pleasures. Sexual sin points to that. And in the midst of it all, we have this institution of marriage that is to point, its, point us beyond itself to God's love and faithfulness to his people. I mean, this is why you can really tell the whole story of the Bible through the theme of marriage. 
It begins in the garden at the very beginning of creation when God creates one man and one woman. But before he creates the woman, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so a deep sleep falls on Adam and God takes out a rib from his side and he builds the woman as a helper suitable to Adam. She is his joy. She enters into this marriage relationship with Adam, this covenant relationship. But in their sin, they disobey God and they become exposed and they are naked and ashamed now due to their sin. And that sin breaks down relationships. So now that the man is hiding from his wife and the wife is hiding from her husband and God comes to them and banishes them from the garden. And in a fallen world, in a Genesis 3 world, sexual immorality is rampant. And you read the story and you find polygamy and you find Sodom and Gomorrah and you find sexual sin pervasive in the storyline of the Bible. But God calls this one man, Abraham, and his family through whom he's going to bring redemption. And you read wonderful stories like Genesis 24 about how Abraham finds a wife for his son, Isaac. And it's a beautiful story of this marriage, but really it's a story of redemption because Abraham sends his servant to a faraway land to go find a wife for his bride. And this servant of Abraham will be led by an angel of the Lord. And he goes to this distant land and he meets Rebekah at a spring of water. And she agrees to go back with him, but they go to her brother first, and her brother agrees to send her away, but then he's reluctant, kind of like Pharaoh, but ultimately decides to let her go. And she comes back to Isaac and becomes his wife and goes into his tent where they enter this marriage covenant. It's a beautiful story, but really it's the story of the Exodus, right? It's the story we've been studying now for weeks where God has redeemed a people out of the bondage of Pharaoh. And he leads them by an angel of the Lord into the wilderness where he enters this covenant relationship with them, this marriage-like covenant, and will dwell in their midst in the tent of the tabernacle. And it's a beautiful redemption story. And in many ways, it is a marriage story. It's incredible that as the story goes on, Israel is presented as the faithful the faithless wife who prostituted herself with other gods. Israel's an ugly, faithless bride, but what's incredible is that God promises to redeem this bride and to show steadfast love to this sinful, immoral bride. And perhaps it's most powerfully, parabolically displayed in the prophet Hosea. When God calls Hosea, to go marry a prostitute and to have children with the prostitute. And why is he telling him to do that? Because it's a symbolic representation of what God is going to do for his adulterous people. He'll redeem them. He will be faithful to them. And so when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he comes preaching this message about the heart and he exposes us as an adulterous people, guilty of violating the law of God, but also guilty of idolatry. 
and he calls himself the bridegroom. His first miracle was done where? At a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right, where he turns the water into wine. And he goes on from there, revealing himself as this true bridegroom to meet the woman at the well, as we have talked about so many times, this sexually immoral woman who has been with five men, is now in a relationship with the sixth man, and yet she encounters the seventh, the true bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin. He calls it out for what it is, but he offers her living water because God's plan is to save a sexually immoral bride, and Jesus came to save this sexually immoral woman. And after offering her this living water and her believing in the Messiah, he doesn't say, now just go continue your life. He says, go and sin no more. Now be changed by my love. Be transformed by my grace. And as the story goes on, you know that Jesus goes to the cross and while dying for an immoral, adulterous people, he's pierced in his side and outflow the blood and the water. For it is the blood and the water that creates the bride of Christ. And after enduring that cruel death on a cross to cleanse his bride from their ugly stain of sin, he rises from the dead and meets a woman in a garden. There on the first day of the new creation, a man and a woman in a garden the man who is the resurrection and the life, the true Adam, who didn't stand by passively like Adam did when Eve ate the fruit and then joined her, but instead went to the tree in death to cleanse us of our sin, to save us and then present us as his church as a beautiful bride without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. And it doesn't end there. Because in the future, the consummation of history is where? It's at a marriage feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where all God's people will be gathered together as the bride of Christ who have been cleansed, who have been purified, who have been forgiven to worship Christ, the faithful bridegroom who will never forsake his covenant. If you belong to Christ, if you have believed that his death and resurrection is sufficient to save you from your sins, if you believed that on his cross he paid the full penalty and absorbed the righteous wrath of God in your place to redeem you and to save you, then you can choose to live in ongoing guilt and shame for past sexual sin, but you're living a fiction because you have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been made new. And do you know what the motivation is for fighting for sexual purity? It's basking in the love of Christ that he has bestowed on you. It's the forgiveness that he continually extends to you despite your unfaithfulness. It's the covenant-keeping love that will not let you go no matter how many times you chase after lesser pleasures. I know I need to finish, but let me share this story with you. I was reading a book last week where a pastor told a story about a lady named Tammy and her husband, Tommy. I don't think that's their real names. Tammy grew up in a broken household. 
where she was sexually abused severely by multiple men. It had a profound impact on her, so she grew up to be a sexually promiscuous woman. She was a master manipulator, angry, abusive. She didn't trust men at all for good reason. Her life was a wreck, but Jesus saved her. And he granted her salvation, but she continued to have bad relationships with men. One day, she shared her testimony at church, and Tommy was there. He listened to her and was intrigued. He got to know her, and after three years, they started a courtship for one year. One thing Tammy noticed during their courtship was Tommy's leadership. She said, he spent a lot of time getting to know me. He initiated everything. That was normal. That was not normal, she said. I ordinarily manipulated everything. He was also the first guy to treat me in an honorable and respectful way. Tommy eventually married Tammy against the advice of many pastors who told him she has a lot of baggage and you're going to have to deal with it and it's going to be a hard marriage. But he set his affection on her and he married Tammy. And they had a lot of struggles in marriage for the first 10 years. A lot. But she said this, I didn't know how to function in a relationship with someone like Tommy. I didn't know how to go about this in God's way. Tommy, by God's grace, was very patient. I didn't know how to communicate in a godly way, and I would get angry. I didn't know how to submit. I thought he would leave me like everyone else. But Tommy didn't leave Tammy. And Tammy was changed and sanctified through her husband. And Tommy was changed and sanctified through his wife. And this is what they said. I'm going to read to you one more thing Tammy said from their story. Reflecting on her experience, Tammy said, One of the lies I often heard from counselors and friends coming out of high school was you did nothing wrong. And you only need to worry about your happiness, comfort, and protection. After becoming a Christian, that way of thinking made me angry with God. I didn't understand why he allowed all these terrible things to happen to me, so I blamed God. Why didn't you rescue me? That's why in my relationships I became so, the world calls it codependent, God calls it idolatrous. I would become very needy and overbearing emotionally. Yet Tommy didn't let me do that to him. He wouldn't let me idolize him or our marriage. He constantly pointed me to the scriptures and prayed for me. At the time, I saw him doing this as being mean, but he was loving me. He wouldn't let me manipulate him to get my way. I remember waking up early in marriage, even on our honeymoon, and seeing him reading the Bible and praying on his knees. And I think that has sustained our marriage. The grace of God working through the Spirit of God and the Word of God has sustained us. After many years of this covenant bond, Tammy became more gentle. She started to trust Tommy, patient with her kids, and they're faithful, godly members of a local church serving Jesus in so many ways. The point is that you can see how Tammy and Tommy's marriage points to the gospel of our redemption. Jesus is the ever-faithful husband, the covenant keeper, never leaving, never forsaking, always forgiving, always granting what is best for his people, always ready to help restore shape, mold us. This is the Savior the world needs. This is the message of marriage 
the world needs. Let's not capitulate on it as the pressures mount. The gospel is worth it. People need it. You're going to get asked to do various things. Right? If you, it's probable that you may get asked to go to a, a so-called gay wedding. Well, tell them why you can't go by telling them of this glorious gospel and what marriage is. That's how you love someone. Tell them the truth. Let's stay true to the vows we have made in our own marriages. So a word in closing to married couples. I promise I'll close. The world is in such confusion. As our culture continues to get deeper into the kinds of sexual immorality that will leave them broken and empty, maybe in their desperation, they will see in the church something beautiful and compelling about marriages that are seeking to uphold God's design. So let's fight for our marriages in a way that portrayed the gospel. We'll never do that perfectly. Don't ask my wife about that. Glad she's not here today. God, help us to delight in our own spouses and remain faithful to the end to our covenant vows. Fight against temptation by expressing gratitude. If you find yourself resenting your spouse, complaining about your spouse, miserable about your spouse, having a pity party, that is a sure path to other sins. Instead, thank God, express gratitude for the good gifts of his grace that you see in your spouse that he has given you. And heed the wisdom of Proverbs. I'll close with this verse. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your redeeming love, true love, transforming love, justifying love. Lord, we live in the midst of a culture that is so estranged, lost. Lord, help us to be those who are loving and bold in our declaration of the truth. And help us to be those, Lord, who are being conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, we pray that we would confess our sins before you and that you would give us the strength to embrace being the kind of husbands and the kind of wives that the Bible calls us to be. We pray that our lives would adorn the gospel message that we preach. We pray that you would keep us from the lies of the evil one and help us to walk in faithfulness and fulfill the vows that we have made for your honor and your great name. Help us to keep this seventh word by your spirit that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. We trust God will use this sermon in your life. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like more information about Crossroads, 
email us at info at crossroadschurchutah.org. That's info at crossroadschurchutah.org.